Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. An award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business, he is the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He's been interviewed on CBS's Evening News, GMA, CNN, and NPR, among others. His pioneering research has been featured in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The New England Journal of Medicine, and Science. He completed his BA at the University of Pennsylvania and his PhD at Columbia. And today he's here to chat about his best-selling book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, why it matters, and how to harness it. Ethan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's a delight to be here. So great to have you. The title of the book is Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and Why It Matters and How to Harness It. So definitely one of the titles that came across my desk where I stopped and said, this is interesting. And so the book is interesting. It's a great read. And like, so many leaders in the health and wellness world, a book or a company starts with a powerful personal story and you have one as well. So let's start with your personal story, your own chatter regarding a letter you received. Yeah. Happy to. It was about a little over 10 years, I guess around 10 years ago that we're, we're marking the 10 year anniversary of the letter I talk about in chatter. The backstory on it was my colleagues and I had just uh, published a study that had gotten a lot of media attention. And it was a really exciting time. I went on the evening news. My mom watched me on television. It was great. And then about a week later, I checked my mailbox at work at the University of Michigan, and there was a hand-addressed letter directed to me. And so I opened it up. And once I did, I started sweating instantly when I, when I read what was in there. The letter contained all sorts of ugly threats and racial slurs and drawings. And it was a really scary moment. I, I showed it to a couple of colleagues who told me I had to go to the police to report it, which I did. They were, you know, kind, but not particularly comforting. Their, their main advice to me was to, you know, they said that these things happen from time to time. They usually amount to nothing, but just to be safe, you might want to drive home a different way from work for the next few days. And the, the funny thing about that directive they gave me was at the time I lived like four blocks from my office. So there weren't a whole lot of routes I could take home. And so for the next few nights, I was really spinning. I was experiencing what I call chatter, which is getting stuck in a negative thought loop where all one is able to think about is the problem at hand. You're really trying to work through the emotions, but you're not making any progress. You're worried, you're ruminating in ways that create real problems for your ability to focus, for your relationships, for your health. And I was deep in chatter for several days following that letter. And the interesting thing about that experience on the one hand was it gave me new insight into a problem that I had been studying for a while. And it also, as I describe in the book, helped me discover a, a new strategy, a new tool that is use, was useful for me in that moment and that has proven useful for other people too. So, so that's my own story with the chatter. So, you know, people always, people ask me a lot, have I ever experienced it as someone who studies it? Heck yeah, I experience it. I think most people do. And it is not fun when 
it is not fun. And I think that would be a nightmare for anyone receiving a threat, but at, at the highest level, you know, I think that that's a horrifying example and, and people, there are other examples that people are suffering where there's real worry, there's real concern. You also talk about the everyday chatter. You know, we, we talk to ourselves. We all do. I talk to myself, we, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And so why do we talk to ourselves? Yeah, I love this question. And it's, it's a question I devote some time in the book to addressing because on the one hand, for some of us, I think this idea of talking to ourselves, of having an inner voice is something that is very familiar, but other people wonder what does it actually even mean to have an inner voice or talk to ourselves? So let me kind of give some definitions here and break things down. When I use the term inner voice, what I'm talking about is our ability to silently use language to reflect on our life. And it turns out that that capacity to silently use language to deal with things in our world is a remarkable superpower that lets us do many different things. Just to rattle off some of the, the key functions that this inner voice allows us to, to achieve at the most basic end of the spectrum. If you want to keep a little nugget of information active in your head for a short period of time, you use your inner voice. So you want to memorize a phone number, repeat that number in your head, 209-0501, 209-0501. That's using your inner voice. You go to the grocery store. You go down the, the, the grocery store and you think, hey, what, what do I have to get? And then you repeat the items. That's using your inner voice. That's you talking to yourself in, in some form. Your inner voice is part of what we call our working memory system basic system of the human mind that we rely on every single day. So that's one thing you use your inner voice for. We also use it to simulate and plan before we go on an interview or a date or give a presentation. People often rehearse what they're going to say. I'll often go for a walk around my neighborhood or if I'm presenting in a hotel, I'll go for a walk around the lobby and I won't, I, on those walks, I will rehearse what I'm going to say often word for word. I'll go through the whole presentation. I don't do that out loud. If I did, I'd be in big trouble, right? But I do it in my head. That's me using my inner voice to simulate and plan. I use my inner voice. I talk to myself when I'm exercising on it. And, and there it oscillates between being motivational. Come on, seven more reps and you're done to being somewhat hostile. Often having that hostility directed towards the trainer who is telling me to do very painful things. You son of a bleep, all in my head, all silent. And then finally, we use our inner voice to make sense of our world. You know, we experience hiccups in life. And when that happens, we often pause and try to figure out, well, why that happened? What does that say about who I am? How can I deal with this situation? And we use our inner voice to create stories that help us make sense of those bits of adversity that we experience. So it's a remarkable tool. It's a tool that we engage in for lots of different reasons quite a bit of the time, but it's also something that is somewhat unwieldy because it, although that inner voice we have and this ability to talk to ourselves serves us well a lot of the time, it can often get us in trouble because rather than coming up with clear solutions to our problems, we often end up worrying and catastrophizing and ruminating, which is what I call chatter. And that's really the, the dark side of the inner voice. So those are some great examples of what's healthy in terms of our inner voice, how we can view it as an asset. And you're segueing to the ways it could be unwieldy, the ways our inner voice can be considered unhealthy. And 
it all, it happens, happens to the best of us. What do we do when that inner voice starts to go to a place that is negative and unproductive? Well, you know, the first thing that I think is important to keep in mind is when that happens, and like you said, it happens to the best of us. I have yet, by the way, to give a presentation to someone, to a group and, and ask, have you ever experienced chatter and not have every single person raise their hand? It is quite amazing how prevalent it is. First thing to keep in mind is what our goal is when we experience chatter. Our goal isn't, or shouldn't, at least I don't think it should be, to silence our inner voice. Given all of the remarkable things it does for us, you don't want to stop talking to yourself. You don't want to get rid of this. What you want to do is figure out how to harness it. And by what I mean by that is you want to figure out how to stop the worry, rumination, catastrophizing, thought looping, whatever you want to call it, overthinking, and instead free up your inner voice to do all the remarkable things that it's capable of doing. And the good news here is that there are a boatload of tools that scientists have discovered to help people do this. There are no single magic pills. I'm struck by how frequently I come across, you know, prescriptions in popular culture to do this or that, and it is going to solve all of your worries and ruminations. I've been doing research on this for over 20 years. There is no such thing as a single magic pill. But instead, we know that there are lots and lots of different tools. I talk about 26 of them in my book. And, you know, oftentimes people use those tools in combinations to help them manage their chatter. And, and when they do, it can be really effective. The way I like to break these tools down is they, you could think about them as residing in three buckets, tools you can use on your own, tools that involve other people around you and how you can leverage your relationships with others to help you manage your chatter. And then environmental tools, ways of interacting with our physical spaces that are not always obvious, but that can have a pretty powerful effect on helping us rein in an inner voice run amok. Within those three buckets, could you maybe provide a real world example of each? Yeah, happy to. So let's, uh, let's go through them from things you could do on your own. First thing to know about chatter is when we experience it, we tend to zoom in really narrowly on the problem. That is all we can think about is this one thing. It's that one email. And the thing that was mentioned, and you keep on replaying, oh my God, what am I going to do? What does this mean? And so forth and so on. What we have found is useful when people get themselves in that state of being zoomed in on a problem are strategies that help people zoom out, strategies that help people broaden their perspective to help them look at the big picture. We call these distancing tools. And there are lots of different ways that you can get distance from your problems. Some common ones that, that, I personally use and that are, that are in the book that have been validated. You can do something called distant self-talk, which involves giving yourself advice uh, of the sort that you would give to a really good friend and really leveraging the structure of language to help you do that. And what I mean by that is this, try to work through a problem using your own name and the second person pronoun you. Doing it silently, of course, not out loud. But like, all right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this situation? One of the things we know is that it is much easier for us as human beings to give advice to other people than to follow, to give, our, give ourselves advice when we are experiencing chatter. And so what distant self-talk does is it uses language to relatively effortlessly shift our perspective to get us to start relating to ourselves and talking to ourselves 
more similar to how we would communicate with someone else that we care about. If you think about when do you use names and the word you, we use those parts of speech when we think about and refer to other people. And so what this strategy is doing, it's putting us into this, this other mode of relating to ourselves. It's saying, all right, what would you say to your best buddy? And give yourself that advice. And so that can be a really helpful tool. Another easy to use distancing tool, something we call temporal distancing or mental time travel. Think about how you're going to feel about some problem that you're, you're struggling with a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now. When the chatter is taking hold, it, it often feels like everything is wrapped up in this experience. We're never going to break free. Of course, we've experienced moments of chatter throughout our lives. And so we have learned that most sources of chatter, they come and go. They feel really terrible when you're in it, but eventually they fade with time and we move on to other things. What this strategy does is it reminds us of this phenomenon right in the heat of the moment. It highlights the instability of what we're going through. It tells us, hey, as awful as what you're dealing with is right now, it's temporary. It'll eventually pass. And that does something really powerful for an inner, an inner voice run amok. It, it gives us hope that our circumstances are going to improve. And hope can be a powerful antidote to chatter. So this is, that's actually, those two tools are what I call my 2 a.m. chatter tools. So every four to six weeks, I don't know why it happens. I don't think anyone does. I've looked into this. I'll just wake up at 2 a.m. and be struck with some worry. And... You know, there are lots of different prescriptions about what to do when that happens. Some people say to read or, you know, do muscle relaxation. My technique is really simple. I do, Ethan, how are you going to feel about this tomorrow morning? What that does is it always reminds me, it, it's always better in the morning, right? It's always terrible at 2 a.m., but in the morning when I have my brain at full, fully recharged, I'm often able to deal with the situation more effectively. So, so, um, you know, distant self-talk and temporal distancing that often helps with the late night chatter. So those are two distancing tools that you could do on your own. They're really simple things you could do. There's a lot of complexity that went into their identification, but, but their implementation is, is pretty easy. One other tool, and then I'll throw it back to you, that you can do, use on your own that people often do uh, is perform a ritual. Uh, rituals are ancient chatter fighters. I'd actually be interested in, in whether you as a former athlete, Jason, or maybe you're still a current athlete, sorry for using the former designation, have ever used rituals to deal with some chatter on the court or know anyone who has. Has that ever popped up in your experience? Sure. Well, definitely former athlete, I'm 47. But yeah, athletes live by rituals. Whether it would be game prep, eating the same meal or taking, for me, it was, I would, at college, I would always take a nap. My nerves would always, before games, I would always have to go to the bathroom. I was I always have to be more specific. I'd always have to have a bowel movement before the game. It was like nerves. And so like athletes are notorious about rituals. So, so yes. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it turns out rituals have been with us for a while. I, I like to call them an ancient chatter fighting tool. They're interestingly, on the one hand, our cultures often give us rituals for dealing with chatter. So if you think about, for example, when we lose someone we love, cultures, many religious and, and also secular cultures give us things to do 
when we're grieving the loss of a loved one. What a ritual is, it's a rigid sequence of behaviors that we, we perform the same way every single time. Oftentimes, the behaviors that compose a ritual are, are a little random or even wacky. But the idea is you do these things the same way each time, and performing that ritual has some meaning. It's connected context and a goal, like, you know, getting ready for a big game or presentation. Rituals help us with our chatter in a few different ways. One thing that they do is they provide us with a sense of order and control, which is often lacking when we're experiencing chatter. Because when you're experiencing chatter, like your mind is taking over. It, it has the you know, the, the, it is steering the ship. I was trying to think about the reins. It has the reins on a horse. Like it's controlling you. You don't have control over what's happening. And that's not a pleasant feeling for a lot of us because we know that people in general are highly motivated to feel in control. So a ritual is under your control. You can execute this set of behaviors. So when you do it, it gives us this sense of agency which compensates for the lack of control we often feel when we're experiencing chatter. And that's comforting. Another thing that, that rituals do is they're often attentionally demanding. So they require us to focus on these rituals to perform them. And that often takes the attention away from the chatter and onto something else. So that's, that's a third tool that you can do on your own that has been shown by science to be useful. Three of, of many others, but that gives you a taste. No, I, I love it. And they're all great tools. And, and something else to build off that, which you mentioned, I thought was fascinating, the book, External Spaces. Can you yeah. talk a little bit how external spaces can influence our internal dialogue? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, this was, for me, one of some of the most fun I had writing the book and researching it was really diving into this research on how our environments can affect us. In some ways, it's almost like there are tools for managing our chatter all around us. And you just need to know where to look to find them. And as I went through the research, it was kind of like someone just like gave me the pair of glasses to see these tools all over the place. So here's one tool that I have used for quite a while. And I actually didn't realize I was doing it until I knew this research. I, when I'm, when I experience a little bit of chatter, I will do something very uncharacteristic of me. I will organize and clean. I, I say that because I, you know, I, I consider myself a clean individual. I, you know, take a shower every day and wash with soap, all that good stuff. But throughout my life, I've been a little bit messy, you know, a trail of clothing from the shower to the bedroom, to my office downstairs. It drives my, it drove my mom crazy. It, you know, now my drives my wife crazy. But when I experience chatter, I've always done this out of, you know, sync thing for me. I, I clean up, I'd organize, I'd put things away. When I clean up my, after cleaning up my office, I'd go and actually go clean up my kids' room sometimes, like bizarre, right? And then the kitchen. What I'm doing there is very similar to how a ritual helps us. By organizing and creating order in my surroundings, right? That's giving me this sense of agency and control which I lack when I'm experiencing chatter. So that's another thing you can do, organize and clean up. There's also, at least based on my own personal experiences, some relationship benefits from engaging in that practice. Another way your environment can help you, you know, enhance your exposure to green spaces. Going for a walk in nature, or even 
you know, looking at a documentary of nature has been shown to help people managing chatter. And the way this works is when you're experiencing chatter, it's consuming all of our attention, right? Like think about trying to read a couple of pages in a book when you're worried about something. It's impossible. You read the pages, but you don't remember a damn thing you've read because your mind is somewhere else. What interacting with a green space does is it gives us an opportunity to restore our attention. Because when you're surrounded by green stuff, it's interesting. And our attention gently drifts away from the chatter and onto our surroundings. Now, you're not like very carefully studying your surroundings. I suppose many, some people may do that. But most people just kind of become what scientists call, they become fascinated with their surroundings in a very soft, gentle way. They're just taking it in. Oh, look at the trees and the bushes. And that takes our attention away from the chatter giving us this opportunity to restore our ability to focus and concentrate. Another way that green spaces uh, and environments more generally can help us is by giving us the opportunity to experience the emotion of awe, which is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, something bigger than ourselves that we just can't quite wrap our head around like a beautiful sunset or, you know, a wonderful view. If you're walking down the streets of New York City, the skyscrapers can fill people with a sense of awe. They do me. When we experience awe, this is like the ultimate way of broadening our perspective because we feel smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so does our chatter. So those are a few ways that your environment can help you when you're struggling. I, I love it. And I find it so fascinating and refreshing. So many really smart people we've had on the show who are at the cutting edge of all the latest and greatest research out there. They come back to getting outside. Yeah. Being in nature doesn't have to be that complicated, even enjoying the awe of the city. And it, it's in a world where a lot of people view health and wellness and look, health and wellness has a lot of issues coming back to time and, and resources in terms of financial resources required to, you know, to, to be healthy, getting outside is, is pretty economical and we can all fit it into our day. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a side effect free, you know, with the exception of whether you have, um, allergies, I suppose, but it, it's a side effect free of getting support. And you know, that that's one of the things that one of the reasons I was so passionate about writing this book and talking about a lot of these tools is a lot of these tools are actually easy to implement and, you know, don't cost anything. They're really simple. And you got to know what they are though, because if you don't know what they are, then you're not going to be using them or you won't be using them most efficiently. As, as an example of that, I think some of the tools I talk about, like, you know, cleaning up and organizing, let's say that's a pretty common tool. Some people report just feeling some urge to do that when they're under stress, right? But they're not being really deliberate about doing it. They just kind of stumble on this tool. They just find themselves doing it. One of the values of knowing about these tools and knowing about the science is it gives us the opportunity to be really deliberate right? We can have a game plan. So we know that the moment we detect the chatter beginning to brew, I'm going to do these three or four things. And this is actually what I do. So the moment I sense the chatter, I activate three or four tools, which don't take very long, but often succeed in helping me nip it in the bud. I don't have to wait to stumble on something that helps me. 
And I think that helps relieve a lot of misery. No, it does. And on the subject of misery and grief, you know, a lot of collective grief right now in the world for many reasons. And, and in the book, you know, you, you mentioned a study about 9-11. You know, I was in New York at the time of 9-11. It was a very difficult time to be here, a difficult time for various reasons. And what's so fascinating about your study is one of the conclusions, contrary to public opinion, is that talking about negative emotions doesn't actually make us feel better, which I found to be fascinating because th there is this, people believe to be, there is this perception where talking through something is good. There is a therapeutic benefit, but your study, like where does talking go wrong? Yeah. So, so, um, you know, this was a really fun, fun and challenging chapter too to write and to really nail this. It's not that talking per se is harmful or something that we don't want to do. It's that you can talk to other people about your chatter in ways that are either helpful or harmful. And the way that many of us think we should talk to other people based on messages we often get from popular culture aren't particularly helpful. So many people think that the route to feeling better about chatter is to find someone to vent their emotions to, right? Just get it out, express your feelings. This is a very common belief. Aristotle was the first to talk about it. Freud ran away with it after him and us weekly and people you know took the helm after him not long after to promote this idea and so a lot of people are just intuitive that hey you should just vent your emotions don't keep it bottled up inside there's been a lot of research on venting over the years and what we've learned is that venting your emotions to someone else can be really good for strengthening the friendship and relational bonds between two people it feels good to know that there's someone else out there that cares enough about you that they're willing to take enough time, you know, take the time to listen. But if all you do is vent about how you feel, that doesn't actually help people work through, doesn't help broaden people's perspective and allow them to reach a sense of closure, which is often exactly what we need when we're struggling with chatter. Here is the way to get good support. Here's the way to talk productively to someone else about your chatter. You want to do two things. You want to find someone who does allow you to share a little bit about what you're going through. It is important for them to learn about your feelings and for you to feel validated. But at a certain point in the conversation, you ideally want the person you're talking to to help broaden your perspective, right? Maybe they share with you how they've dealt with similar situations or they ask you, how do you think you might be able to manage this productively? How have we dealt with this in the past? How do you think this is going to impact you long-term? Rather than just getting you to just keep on adding, you know, logs to the burning fire, so to speak, by keep continually rehearsing what you felt, the idea is they're, they're nudging you to go broad. That is the formula for getting good chatter support. And I think there are two important take-homes for listeners to knowing about this work. The first is to be really careful about who you talk to about your chatter. There are a couple of people in my life that I turn to regularly. They are a resource. I think of them as my, my, my advisors, my chatter advisors. They're really good at both listening and then helping me go broad. And I avail myself of them when I'm experiencing chatter. But I want to be clear, there are lots of people in my life who love me a great deal and I love them. I never talk to them about my chatter because I know all they're going to do is keep me really upset by just asking me about what happened when I, when I felt. 
right? So, so I'm really deliberate about who I talk to, uh, and I encourage others to to do the same. The other benefit having to do with knowing about the science is it gives you a blueprint for what to do if someone comes to you with a problem, right? We don't take classes on this growing up, like how to be a good support provider to other people. But science here provides us with a guide. And what it tells us is you do want to take some time to listen, but at a certain point in the conversation, you want to start working with that person you're talking to to help them go broad. Now, there's an art to doing this well. It's not always clear when exactly you should shift from just listening to advising. And my advice there is to just feel that out. You know, ask the person, hey, I, I got it totally. I have an idea. Can I share it with you? And sometimes they'll say, no, I'm not done. I want to keep going and let them go, you know, for a little while longer. Try again a little bit later. Other times, in my experience, they're like, please tell me what to do. That's why I've called you. And so, so that's my bit on, that's one part of the whole bit about how to benefit from your relationships with other people when it comes to your chatter and not be brought down by them instead. So on the subject of support, there's a fascinating study in the book you reference from Columbia psychologist, Niall Bolger, an experiment on invisible support. Can you share a bit about that study? Yeah. So this is the other half of the support equation. Everything we've just talked about has to do with instances in which someone actively comes to you and wants to talk about their chatter. There are going to be lots of instances in, in people's lives where they see other people they care about, whether they be a friend, a loved one, a child, a coworker who's suffering from chatter. They're ruminating, they're worrying, but they don't ask you for help. They're dealing with this on their own. And the, then the question is, well, what do you do? Do you volunteer to support them or do nothing or do something else? Research by this psychologist, Niall Bolter and others suggests that you should be careful about volunteering the support when you're not asked to do so because it could blow up in your face. If there are parents who are listening, this will probably be a somewhat familiar experience a lot. A lot of the time, parents experience this with the kids. I have with my daughters. I see them ruminating about something, boys or tests or homework. Like, hey, sweetie, can I help you? I have an idea. And, you know, they instantly give me a dirty look and say, I didn't ask you for help. Can you just leave me alone? What's happening there is we know that people are highly motivated, feel like they have agency to feel like they are in control of their own circumstances. And so when you volunteer to help someone, they haven't asked for it. The message that is registered is you don't think that I'm capable of dealing with my own crap. So that can elicit defensiveness and threats to the individual you're trying to help and it can create friction in relationships. The good news is that there are still ways to help people who are struggling and don't ask you for help. And what it involves doing is providing what, what scientists call invisible support. This is getting people assistance, but without shining a spotlight on the fact that you're doing so. And there are lots of different ways you can do this. Some are really mundane. So if my wife is experiencing a lot of chatter, worry, worry for whatever reason, there are simple things I can do to ease her burden and, and, and make it easier for her to deal with what she's do, doing. I can take care of dinner that night and, you know, make sure that I do all the kid activities. Now I'm doing those things without giving her a receipt at the end of the day and saying, look at all the things I did, that would defeat the purpose of it. But that's a way of helping invisibly. I'm just taking care of it, easing her burden. Another thing you could do is 
rather than directly confront someone to give them information, you could try to get them the information that might help them with their chatter through some other means. So if someone in my lab group is really struggling, let's say with their presentation skills, rather than pulling that person aside and having a little conversation with them about what's lacking and how they can improve, I can make, I can make it a focus of our next team meeting, a discussion for everyone about, hey, what are the things that we all find useful for improving our presentation skills? That other individual who's struggling, they're part of that conversation, but they don't realize that I'm doing that, I'm having that whole conversation for their benefit. So I'm getting the person the information, but without, again, shining a spotlight on the fact that I'm doing so. One final example of a form of invisible support that I'm really fond of is something that you call, we call affectionate, but not creepy touch. And what I mean by that is we know that, you know, I, I always have to be careful on how I introduce this, but touch is- I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think okay, great. Well, <laughs> talking about this sometimes in an organizational context is not easy. You know, touch is one of the most primitive tools we have for helping people manage chatter. It, it automatically releases, you know, an affectionate embrace, a, a hug, a, a pat on the shoulder, a, a warm caress. This- leads to the automatic release of stress-fighting uh, chemicals in the, in the body. It also, at a conscious level, reminds us that there's someone else out there in the world that really cares about us. And so it can be really useful. If you think about babies when they're born into this world, first thing we do is skin-to-skin -skin contact to soothe them. In order for this to be useful, it has to be wanted. So, you know, proceed accordingly. I, I'm not advocating that you should be going around giving unsolicited hugs to coworkers and things of that sort. But certainly in, in intimate relationships between close friends and loved ones, I think this is another tool that we have at our disposal for helping people. In all the research you've done, you've dedicated most of your professional life to this subject and you've done some extensive research for this book. I'm curious, what, what have you found to be the, the most interesting, fascinating to you? Well, I don't know if we have enough time to get into all of that. But was there, what, was there one study or one moment where you just said, wow, I just can't believe I discovered that, or I can't believe I just read that? Well, I'll, I'll give you a few, you know, I find the distant self-talk fascinating. The idea that, you know, using your own name to work through a problem, like many people actually report doing this without even knowing it. I talk about many examples in the book dating back to Julius, from Julius Caesar to Malala Yousafzai and LeBron James and countless other people. Under stress, we, for some reason, switch into trying to work through our circumstances using our own name. That to me is mind boggling. It's like we have this internal radar that guides us towards chatter fighting tools when we really need them. And I can guarantee that many of the people who use that tool were not explicitly taught to do so earlier in life. We just kind of sense it out. I found that really fascinating. I found it really fascinating how frequently people try to work through things by venting their emotions, even though it doesn't help and how that can get them stuck in you know, cognitive gridlock, if you will, in, in chatter. And I guess the, the final thing that I found fascinating is just how many amazing tools are out there. You know, 26 science-based validated tools as the, the tally at the end of the book that, that I, I list all these things out. And we've got this like amazing 
armamentarium for managing chatter. And it's just there waiting to be used. And that to me is just, you know, it's a, it's an observation that gives me a lot of hope that there's a lot of good we can do for the world by sharing the science with them. Well, amen. And the book is fantastic. And for anyone, which is pretty much everyone who has an inner voice or struggles with it again, which is everyone, I highly recommend it. Ethan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jason. 